Last weekend was Memorial Day weekend, last Monday being Memorial Day. A great deal of emphasis on those who had paid a tremendous price, who had made a tremendous sacrifice for this country and for freedom. I wonder how many times the word sacrifice was, was uttered during that three or four day period around Memorial Day. And rightfully so. And we're not far from another holiday, Independence Day, the 4th of July. And again, you will hear that word sacrifice and freedom, and indeed appropriately so. I want us to think about that word sacrifice this morning, but specifically, I want us to talk about sacrifices that save. Sacrifices that save. And our text will come from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 17. We encourage you to turn there. We'll have the verses on the screen, but it's good to follow along if you'd like. Hebrews 13, 15 through 17. But before we get to those verses that depict three sacrifices that save, I want us to think about another passage in that same Hebrew epistle that reminds us of the sacrifices that do not save. And I could wish this morning that there were those everywhere, everywhere who fully appreciated the significance of the sacrifices that do not save. And yet, we live in a world where that is not the case. We live in a world where there are still many who religiously are clinging to sacrifices, in effect, that, that do not save as they seek to cling to elements of the old law or elements of uh, the Old Testament law. But remember, the text before us, Hebrews 10, verse 4, the inspired writer reminds us, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should or could take away sins. Those sacrifices were for a specific time and a specific purpose to point out the exceeding sinfulness of sin and to point man toward the perfect and ultimate sacrifice that could take away sins, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're going to sing in just a few moments, there is power in the blood. But there is no power in the blood to which the Hebrews writer refers in Hebrews 10.4. No, those sacrifices only, only were effective in, in taking men forward, as it were, to the time when the ultimate sacrifice could be paid, the blood could be shed of the sinless Son of God, that would then flow, as it were, backward to that former dispensation to cleanse those who were faithful unto that former dispensation. And there were many who were. Tragically, though, when Jesus came to become that ultimate sacrifice, the fulfillment of all of those animal sacrifices that were simply typical and could not take away sin, for the most part, the Jews 
clung tenaciously to those sacrifices and to that system and crucified the Christ. But in so doing, he became that sacrifice. And yet, even in that, and what they should have seen and could have seen in his presence among them and through his death, burial, and resurrection, still many, and yet, even today, there are those who reject him and cling to that Old Testament system. There are those who would not contemplate at all sacrificing the blood of animals today, but who nonetheless cling to portions of that old system that Jesus came to nail to the cross and took it out of the way, Colossians 2.14. And so there are many tragically today who very sincerely are not meeting today, but met yesterday to, in their view, worship God and observe the Sabbath day a part of the law that has been nailed to the cross, a part of that system of sacrifices, sacrifices that cannot save. And they fail to appreciate, tragically, what the New Testament says, that if indeed you're going to seek to keep one aspect of the law, you're bound, you're debtor to keep the whole law. So in observing the Sabbath, they would be bound to engage in the animal sacrifices. And every other aspect of Judaism... They would have to know the tribe from which they had emanated in order to be truly Judaistic in today's world, and yet that's an impossibility after the destruction of Jerusalem when those genealogies were destroyed. And that system came crashing down forevermore. But Jesus took it out of the way and substituted for it, fulfilled in its place, the better covenant about which the Hebrews writer writes abundantly. And in so doing, speaks to us of the sacrifices that do save. And that brings us to our text in Hebrews 13, 15 through 17, where the writer says, therefore, and the therefore takes us back, doesn't it, to see what it's there for. And the verses immediately preceding deal with the sacrifice of Christ, who was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem. And the admonition is, let us go to him outside the gate. Let us become a part of that sacrifice, that sacrificial spirit. Let us imbibe the sacrificial spirit that Jesus Christ demonstrated so beautifully and so fully and so efficiently. Therefore, by him, let us continually, once we have obeyed the gospel of Christ, once we've expressed our faith in Him, once we've repented of sins, confessed Him to be the Christ, and once we have been buried in baptism for the remission of sins and have risen to walk in newness of life, being added to the kingdom, the church of our Lord and Savior, then, as Christians, therefore, by Him, by His authority, through Him as our high priest, through Him as our mediator, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5, let us, what? continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget, the writer asked, declares, do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And then in verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable 
for you. May I suggest this morning that in these three verses, we have three sacrifices that are spoken of that save. They are speaking sacrifices in verse 15. They are sharing sacrifices in verse 16. And they are submitting sacrifices in verse 17. Think about these three sacrifices that are pleasing to God. First, in the realm of speaking, where the writer says, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. But think about what he introduced these uh, three sacrifices with. Therefore, by him, let us what? Continually. So when we talk about speaking and sharing and submitting, we are talking about admonitions to sacrifice that are to be continual. Not spasmodic, not periodic, not hit or miss, not half-hearted, but whole-hearted. In other words, these sacrifices involve heartfelt sacrifices where we give our hearts to God, where we give our hearts to others fully and completely sacrificing continually, continually. Until the day we die or until the Lord comes again, we are to be engaged in this kind of sacrifice. Speaking, obviously, involves praying, doesn't it? Time and again in Scripture, we are admonished to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Paul was a man of prayer. He called upon Christians to pray for him, and he assured Christians that they had his prayers on their behalf continually, always. And so the first thing that perhaps comes to our mind when we think of sacrifices that involve speaking, the the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name, thanksgiving is to permeate our prayer life. Thanksgiving is to be an integral and continual part of our prayer life. And there are so many things for which we can always be thankful, as we have often said, and should express that thanksgiving to God the Father. But concentrate with me for a moment about speaking in song, because that is something that is also involved in these speaking sacrifices. has to be. It is clearly said to be in a passage like Ephesians 5, 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Speaking, there it is. Speaking to one another, yes. Speaking to the Lord, yes. Speaking where? From the heart. Speaking from the heart. It is to be the fruit of our lips flowing from hearts filled to overflowing with gratitude to God. And our singing is to be something that we take very seriously. At the beginning of this calendar year, we had a singing workshop with Brother Burt Jones. He did an outstanding job. And our song leaders have all been applying themselves to doing the best job they can, doing beautifully in their efforts to lead us and to learn how to be better, effective leaders. We're meeting early in uh, Sunday afternoons, 
about 5.15, usually about 5.30 by the time we get uh, started, to sing and to do all that we can to improve our singing, to be as pleasing to God as we possibly can. Incidentally, we won't be meeting, if you saw on the screen today, early today, because the auditorium will be in use. But we need to take very seriously the admonition by inspiration to sing. A parallel passage, as you well know, I'm sure, to this one in Ephesians 5.19 is Colossians 3.16, where the same writer, Paul, says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, and in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and then he says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so it is reciprocal in that we are to sing to one another and admonish one another, teach one another in song, but also in so doing, we praise God. But notice both passages, in your heart, in your heart. We do not use mechanical instruments of music in the Lord's church. Why? Because of passages like these. Passages which clearly authorize vocal music. Nothing more and nothing less. And passages, and this is not a sermon on instrumental music, but we will simply mention this since we're talking about the importance of singing and the speaking sacrifices that are involved in our singing. The instrument is included in both these passages. The instrument is the heart. We are to sing and make melody in our hearts. Look at the passage in Ephesians 5.19. Making melody is from the original word solo, to pluck or to twang. Oh yes, in its derivation early in the going, it, was involved, it involved the plucking or twanging of the strings of a stringed instrument. But in the time of the New Testament, by that time it had come to mean one thing and one thing only, sing. So we are to pluck the strings, as it were, figuratively of what? A mechanical instrument? No. We're to pluck the heart strings. We're to make melody with the heart. That's the instrument. That's the instrument with which God is concerned. And a passage that we could add to Colossians 3.16, singing, specific form of music that is authorized, the very next verse, Colossians 3.17, says what? And whatever you do, whatever you do, including singing, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. How many times have we said that it means to do something in the name of someone, to do it by one's authority? The only authority the Lord has given us is singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. That is the sacrifice that God, through Christ and through the New Testament, has authorized in terms of our speaking sacrifice. Prayer, praise to God in that way, thankfulness to God, and speaking to God and to one another and admonishing and teaching one another in songs. Beautifully and simply, without the unauthorized accompaniment of mechanical instruments. Sacrifices that save, though, also involve 
sharing. That brings us to verse 16. But do not forget to share. But do not forget to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Oh, how important it is for us to understand the sharing sacrifices that are to be characteristic of our lives as children of God. What are we to share in compliance with this reminder from the inspired writer? Do not forget. We're to share our physical and our spiritual blessings. Not long ago, we studied Galatians, and we looked at Galatians 6 and verse 10, a passage which could and I think would indeed be inclusive of of sharing spiritually and physically, perhaps the emphasis more on, on, the, on the physical, but certainly the spiritual will be included. I think Jared pointed this out when we were studying this particular verse, that inclusive in this would be spiritual as well as physical. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Doing good to those of the household of faith, especially in the physical sense, well, certainly but also in that special spiritual care that we exert for them. And obviously, we do not not extend physical help to non-Christians and leave it at that without any effort. If possible, if they'll let us make the effort, we want to make that effort to reach them spiritually as well, do we not? So a passage that certainly would be inclusive of both. But there's a beautiful Old Testament passage that makes it abundantly clear concerning the spiritual blessings that we should be speaking about and sharing with others. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, Psalm 107 begins, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then notice this, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. If we have been redeemed this morning, then the psalmist reminds us we should be saying so. And this is a reminder from one who wrote under that covenant that was not the final and better covenant that God had in mind all along. The covenant about which the Hebrews writer tells us, the new and better covenant. How much more should we be saying so as those who are privileged to bask in the sunlight of the gospel dispensation and to be recipients of the greatest blessings that ever have been or ever shall be extended to mankind? What should we be saying about our redemption? Everything we can at every opportunity. Being wise as serpents, harmless as doves, yes, Matthew 10, 16, but looking, looking for open doors, looking for opportunities. Collectively as a congregation, absolutely. Individually as a Christian, absolutely. Because both, both need to be involved. Remember what Paul reminded the Ephesian elders of? in terms of his work among them, how I taught you publicly and from house to house. Publicly and from house to house. Both 
are to be involved. Indeed, the redeemed of the Lord should be saying so. The redeemed of the Lord should be giving thanks to the Lord for His ultimate goodness in the plan that has brought about our redemption, understanding that His mercy endures forever. And let us look for opportunities to say so. But finally, as we move to verse 17, we see the submitting sacrifice. And that's clear from the phrase, obey those who rule over you. Who is under consideration in this context? There's no question about the fact that the elders are under consideration in Hebrews 13, 17. You can go back to verse 7 of Hebrews 13. Remember those who, who rule over you or uh, who have taught you the Word of God. The, the passage in Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who rule over you, the leaders, your, your leaders who have spoken the Word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. That would take us back to those who've gone on before, who've been great leaders before, great preachers, elders in the church, great Christian leaders who have been the kinds of examples that are worthy of emulation. And the writer here calls upon these Christians to remember those who've gone before. Oh, how much could be said about so many that I remember who've gone on, who had such a tremendous influence in my life, and I do not doubt that that's so true of so many of you who are Christians here this morning, who've been influenced by those who have long gone to their reward, but whom you remember, whom you love and appreciate for what they did and meant in your life. Perhaps they taught you the truth. Perhaps they brought you home to your first love after you had left the truth. One thing is for sure, those who have gone on, who were faithful to God, who had an influence in your life or sought to have an influence in your life then, would certainly, if they could, encourage you to live the kind of life that will enable you to be with them when this life is over, wouldn't they? Oh, yes, there's so many sweet memories that we can call to mind about those under consideration in verse 7 of Hebrews 13. But when we come down to verse 17, now there's an emphasis here upon the elders. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls, or watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, before we talk about that submission, we need to understand and appreciate something that should be understood, and that is submission must come to the authority of the Savior, but where has the Savior placed the authority to lead in the Lord's church today? Jesus, yes, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A passage we often cite, and rightfully so, is, is John twelve forty eight. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. That's the chief shepherd speaking. And in the word of the chief shepherd, 
He gives us clear teaching through inspired writers like the one in Hebrews in verse 17 of chapter 13, clear instruction to submit to the authority of the shepherds of the flock, the under-shepherds, if you will. And that brings us back to the text. Look at it again. Obey those who rule over you, which says the shepherds, the elders have authority. And be submissive because they are undertaking an obligation, a responsibility, a privilege to watch out for the souls of the flock. It's a sobering responsibility, sobering beyond description for those who've ever served or do serve as shepherds, as elders of the flock. They watch out for your souls, and notice this, as those who what? May give account? No, as those who must give account. They have no option in the matter. One of these days, if they have taken on the responsibility of serving as elders, they are going to have to give account for the souls over which they have been appointed shepherds. Now, what's the responsibility of the flock? Well, here it is said, let them do so, that is, give that account when the final day comes. Let them do so with joy. You conduct yourself in such a way so that when it comes time for them to give an account for your soul, they can do so joyfully and not with grief. Because if the account has to be given with grief, it means that you, as a member of the flock, as a sheep in the sheepfold, did not live up to your responsibilities to God. And tragically, the elders would have to give that unprofitable, grievous account that would ultimately result in your eternal destruction. What does that mean in terms of the shepherd's responsibility in the meantime? Before it comes time, when time is no more, to give that account, what must the shepherds do for every member of the flock? They must do everything they possibly can to enable them to give a joyful account when the time comes. What does that mean? That means teaching, obviously. That means providing food for the sheep, making sure that the sheep are well fed with the truth, nothing but the truth. What does it mean in terms of their responsibility when the sheep refuse the food or when they begin to conduct themselves in a way that indicates they are losing interest in spiritual things. And that is reflected by their attendance or lack of and by other things that clearly demonstrate themselves to be indicators that we have, we have a problem here with one or more of the sheep. What are the elders to do? We've talked about it before. The elders are to admonish. The elders are to encourage the faithful members of the flock to admonish those who are wandering from the fold, who are giving clear indications that they are becoming weaker and not stronger, that they are not 
faithful as they once were. All of that must be done so that we can ultimately, hopefully get to a point to where the account that we finally give is done with joy and not with grief. And ultimately, if every effort to teach and admonish and encourage fails, the final act of loving discipline, withdrawal of fellowship, must occur. And if it does not, if it does not, then when the elders stand before the judgment scene themselves, I cannot imagine the Lord excusing those shepherds and saying, you did almost everything you could have. I would anticipate that he would say, why didn't you do everything I instructed you to do to try to win back those lost souls? Is that an easy thing? Is it easy for family members who are involved in such situations? Absolutely not. But what is the responsibility of family members and every member of the flock of God when that kind of discipline becomes necessary? If it's done properly and patiently, as we have often emphasized, and scripturally, what is the responsibility of the flock? It's given right here in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Be submissive. Be submissive. Do not be rebellious toward that kind of action, but be submissive to it. Be cooperative with it. Cry with the elders who will weep over that effort that has to be ultimately made. Weep, but do not weaken. And do everything you can to bring back those souls. To bring back those souls. The responsibility of an eldership is a two-way street, if you will. Peter makes that clear in a final text. The elders who are among you... I exhort, a final text we're looking at today. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. You're not dictators, but you do have authority. Hebrews thirteen seventeen makes that clear. But being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. That does not fade away. What an awesome responsibility is seen in serving as a shepherd of the flock of God. Because Peter says, you're an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. And you must carry out your responsibilities to the fullest if indeed you have any hope of receiving the crown of glory that does not fade away when the chief shepherd comes and you have to give account for your stewardship as a shepherd to that chief shepherd. Let us all determine 
to work together scripturally so that we can all give a joyful account. The elders for the flock and the elders for themselves because they know they've done what God would have them do because all of us know we've done what God would have us do. The sacrifices that save from the heart are speaking, sharing, and submitting according to these three verses, I believe. It's not burnt offerings and burnt sacrifices that suffice, but it is this kind of sacrifice with which God is well pleased. Is he well pleased with you this morning? Not if you have not presented your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service, Romans 12, 1. But he expects you to do that. He demands that you do that. He deserves to have you do that because of what he's done for you. And so will you respond from the heart with a belief that will lead you to repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins? For those who need to come home to their first love, having once done that, but knowing that you're not living that sacrificial life as you once did, why not this moment? Why not? There may not be another opportunity to come home. In repentance, as we pray with you and for you, to a God who still loves you supremely and who will forgive you completely as we stand to sing. Will you come?